The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father, we are beyond blessed. It truly is remarkable that you would call a people like us into your family. Not treating us as slaves, but as sons. Revealing yourself and speaking to us through your word and giving us the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it and the hearts to comprehend it. So we ask that you do that work again now. I pray that you guard my lips against saying anything that is unhelpful or untrue. I pray that you guard these people's ears, that they would have a discerning spirit, that they would test everything that is said from this pulpit against the scriptures, but that ultimately as we rise up to leave this place in an hour, there will be no doubt that today we have met with God. So speak to us now through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go and return to your feet, please. This morning we are in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. As you know, we've taken a break for this Advent season, taken a break, break from our verse-by-verse work through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We focus in on Genesis chapter 22 this morning. We're going to read verse 1 through 14. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. This is the holy and inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. We should receive it as such. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac's on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, 
Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So as I, as I said, we are in week three now of this Advent season, and we have, we have spent some time considering together, not just Advent. Advent, of course, you know, means arrival or, or the, the coming of Christ. It's the announcement that the angels made to the shepherds there in the darkness of night. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. But if you've been with us these previous weeks, you know that our focus has not just been on the advent. It hasn't just been on the coming of Christ, but on the incarnation. What it means for the word to become flesh. What it means for God to become man. And so week one, we talked about going to John's second letter. We talked about why Christology matters. And you remember that what we found there was that this inspired author, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he told us that this was a matter of separation. That if a man denies that Christ Jesus has come in the flesh, that you're to have nothing to do with this man, that you don't welcome him into your home, you don't give him a blessing or a greeting, because to do a thing like that would be to participate in his evil. Because the things that we say and the things that we think and the things that we teach about who Christ is are very much fundamental. You can't create a Christ after your own image or a Christ of your own liking without fundamentally changing the gospel itself. And so this is not a second tier issue, very much. It's a first tier issue. Then last Sunday morning, you may recall that we went to Hebrews chapter two and, and we sought there to find out about the necessity of Christ's humanity. That he had to come in the flesh in order that he could fulfill all righteousness, in order that he could be everything that man had failed to be. You remember there was that word there about him being perfected through suffering. And we talked about how that meant he needed to be complete. The, the end for what man was meant to be. Everything that Adam and David and every other man had failed to accomplish, Christ Jesus came as man to fully accomplish. That he then, because he was the promised one, because he had fulfilled all righteousness and been all that God called man to be, it was he then who rules as God intended, a man seated in the throne, ruling and reigning over all creation. But you remember that he's not just there by himself, but this was a rescue mission that he came to receive and to take with him many sons to glory, that we are there with him, seated at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, he's unashamed to call us brother, having been sanctified in and by him. Then we came back last Sunday evening, you may recall, to explore the rest of that chapter. And we found out that not only had Christ come to fulfill all righteousness and be everything that man had failed to be, but he needed flesh and blood that he could offer as a sacrifice. That he could destroy the one who had the power over death, that is the devil. That he could go through the teeth of death and, and conquer once and for all that great enemy of man. And by conquering it, by coming out the other side victorious, he could set us free. Those who have been enslaved Lifelong slavery to fear of death. No longer does the enemy have any accusation he can bring against us. And so we need not fear death. 
It's a conquered enemy. And we know that through death, we are enter into the presence of God because of all that Christ has done. We also saw that in addition to offering himself there as an atoning sacrifice and as the one who would defeat the enemy once and for all, but he is also our merciful high priest. That part of being like us in every way means that he is tempted in every way and yet still didn't sin. But because of this, he can sympathize with us in our weakness. Because of this, you might be expected that he would despise us. That was a question I asked you last week. If Christ Jesus knows the full weight of temptation in ways that you or I never possibly will, and yet he conquered and he overcame and he succeeded, how does he not despise us? How does he not resent us as we come in our failure and in our weakness and in our sin and ask him to work on our behalf? And yet, that's exactly what we find in scripture. Far from resentment, Far from despising us, he bids us to come to the throne of grace that we can find mercy and grace and a well-timed help right at the moment that we need it. And I think it's important that we spent quite a bit of time this Advent season as we considered what the incarnation means, focusing in on the humanity of Christ. Because we live in a world that so strongly rejects the deity of Christ, we're so used to every conversation we have when we're talking about who Jesus is, having to make clear that he's fully God, Sometimes we forget the importance of his humanity. Sometimes even in our own minds, in our own heart, we've fallen into some ditch that forgets he is fully man. And so my challenge to you last week was that if you don't have a Christology that allows Jesus to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man, then you have erred. You don't have the Christ of the Bible. You don't have a Christ who is able to fully represent man before God. You don't have a Christ that's able to represent you as a merciful high priest. So now this morning, I believe we're going to focus in on Christ's divinity. What does it mean for Jesus to be fully God? But I've told you the challenge of topical preaching like this. There's, there's a couple for me. Number one, I don't like having to pick a text each week. I like it just to be laid out for us. But, but number two... Whenever I come to you and I make this proposal or I've got a particular question that I want to answer, pretty quickly you come to the scripture and you're reminded this isn't an encyclopedia. This isn't a dictionary or a, or a theology textbook where you just go to the back and say, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this point right here? Then in fact, what we're seeing when we come to the scripture is the progressive unfolding of God's redemptive plan. He was working through time and space and nations and people and history and the cosmos. To reveal his glory as he redeemed everything that was fallen, including man. And so therefore, as I, as I told you last week, instead of just going to one particular text and pulling out the answer to a question, why did Jesus need to be fully God? Instead, we're going to come to large chunks and we're going to work through them. Trusting that God's word never comes back void. And that he's going to reveal much more than just the answer to one question this morning. I believe he's going to reveal to us his son. So that's how we ended up at Genesis 22. And it, the text began like this, after these things. Now, you know that I begin, I mean, this is my pattern. Every pastor has their pattern, every preacher has their pattern, and, and cadence, and, and you've picked up on this by now. I always stop two lines into every text we look at to point backwards to what came before, especially when the text begins with the word, after these things. It's pointing back to what came before. Now, if you look at what came immediately before Genesis 22, you've, you've got Abraham there entering into a treaty with Abimelech. And I, and I don't think that's the only thing, though, that Moses 
wants us to zero in on. If you think about just the, the content of this most memorable narrative, I mean, this is a story that as I began to read it, every one of you knew where the story was going. You studied this word for yourself. You, you know the images and you know the emotions and you know the flow of the, of the story. This is, this is a story that you all know. This is one of those foundational narrative texts from the Old Testament that really has formed your theology and your thoughts about God. And, and so because of the, the weight that comes with this particular narrative and because of everything that God seems to be showing us here, I think this, after these things, points back to everything that came before. At least in the life of Abraham, beginning with God calling him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Everything going all the way back to this pagan, this idol worshiper, this man minding his own business, not seeking Yahweh, not trying to find a different way, not hitting rock bottom, not coming to the end of himself in darkness, but simply a voice from the heavens calling a man to himself. That everything that happened from that point through the moment of this text is what Moses seems to be pointing backwards to. Abraham calling God and then, excuse me, God calling Abraham and then Abraham responding in obedient faith without even fully comprehending where God was sending him, packing up, leaving a life he once knew behind and going. And so, yes, Abraham's obedience and his faith is wrapped up in the, after these things. But also Abraham's failure. The fact that Abraham was a man who was very much interested in Abraham. Very much interested in self-preservation as we see by the way that he lies about his wife. The way that he lies in order to preserve his own life. And so it's what we're meant to see, I think, as we come to this text is Abraham's success and his, and his victory and his faith and his obedience and his sin and his weakness and his selfishness and his failure. I think we're also meant to see as we come into this text, God's magnificent covenant promises to Abraham. Especially his promise that this man as good as dead and his wife also old would bear a child. Not any child. Not a child from any women in the world, but this beautiful bride, Sarah, that she would bear him a son. I think we're meant to remember as we come into this text how Abraham had waited 25 years for God to fulfill this promise. I grumble when God waits 25 minutes. We're meant to remember how he waited more than two decades for God to fulfill this promise as he watched as time went on and on and on. And the fact that when God finally came and fulfilled this thing that he said he would do, that Abraham was now an old man, 100 years old. And yet still he delivered to him this son named Isaac or laughter. It's a laughable thing. That from a man like this and a woman like this that God would bring forth a child through natural, ordinary means. And yet still, it wasn't natural, was it? It was miraculous. The woman was past childbearing years and, and the man was old. And so what we are meant to remember as we come into Genesis 22 is how this is a God who brings life where there was only death. Who brings life where there was no life. We're meant to remember the supernatural way in which he opened this woman's womb, this previously barren womb and brought forth this child. So I think all of that leads us, all of that is meant to, to be the baggage that we carry and the lens through which we see this story as we come to after these 
things. And, and I think that I rehearsed that for you for a couple of reasons. Number one, to catch you up in case this is your first time to consider this story. But also to remember that God doesn't work in a vacuum. If you're not careful and you just throw open your Bible and just go to a particular story and read it and don't consider the history of what God had been doing in that man's life, even before he knew God. We sometimes miss the much larger story of what he is doing. And we're some, we somehow can lose sight of the fact that God's redemptive plan is written in the whole of his creation. I've marveled to you before, often on Wednesday nights, I'm impressed by creative people. I'm not a necessarily creative person. I can draw a really killer elephant. That's it. But I'm amazed by people that can write songs and they can write poems and they can write stories and they can write movies. And, and we all come home from a, from a movie that's got some incredible twist that we didn't see coming at the end. And we, and we talk about what great writing and what great directing and what great producing went into this thing. Forgetting that the God we serve doesn't write his story with pen and paper or instruments and music or on a big screen. He wrote it in the cosmos. He moves nations and kings and stars and hearts to write his story. So after these things, God tested Abraham. Now it's, it's clear that this story is one about great faith and obedience. Abraham towards God. This really is one of those stories that we would do well if, if it was an ordinary, we we're just working through the book of Genesis together. This really is one of those narratives that we would do good to come back and preach from God's perspective one week and from Abraham's the next. Because it's undeniable that God has done an incredible work. What God's doing in this testing, of course, is not revealing any, anything to himself. God knows the heart of man. God knows exactly what Abraham will do. As a matter of fact, the reason Abraham succeeds in this test is because of the work that God has done in his heart. But, but we would be foolish to come to this text. I, I think it would be a terrible mistake, not just because it's Advent season, but I think it would be a terrible mistake to come to this text and make it all about Abraham, or even primarily about Abraham passing this test with flying colors. Again, it's absolutely there. You turn to Hebrews 11 and you find Abraham, as you would expect, listed among the heroes of the faith. Often called the father of the faithful. So yes, we celebrate that. It's impossible to work through the text without pointing out these little pictures here and there as we see them. And it's impossible to read the story of Abraham and not see our own failures. And not wonder to ourselves. This man was willing to give up his son to God. What am I holding on to? What has he asked of me that I've said, no, I won't, I won't go. But again, it would be foolish to make Abraham the center of this story. The story isn't about Abraham. This story is about God. We must always read in the proper order. We must never seek to make anyone other than God the hero of the story. It's a story about God, his redemptive purposes in creation. So he says that God tested Abraham. And he said to Abraham, Abraham? And he said, here I am. This reminds me of God calling, centuries later, God calling to the young boy prophet Samuel. Here I am, Lord. Your servant listens. We, I hear, now, now speak. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of God, I'm, I'm paying attention to what you call me to do and I'm submitted 
fully and completely to whatever it is. I'm here. Your servant listens. Speak. And I have to imagine that there's a really good chance Abraham got really excited at this moment because he was thinking to himself, what great thing is God going to do for me now? I have to imagine that this one who is called a friend of God, he's looking backwards and saying, what else could he have for me? He called me from this pagan land and he has brought me to this place and he's made all these promises and he's going to give me this good land. He's going to give me as many descendants as the stars. He's going to not only bless me, but bless the whole world through me. And now he's made good on one of those promises in a very incredible and remarkable way. He's given me the promised son, the son that I always longed for, Isaac. And so I imagine that probably Abraham was thinking, good, now we're going to escalate this thing a bit. Now we're going to see the next stage in blessing. Is Sarah going to give, give birth to triplets now? Am I going to finally take hold of the land? What, what is going to happen? What God are you going to do? How are you going to bless me? Your servant waits with bated breath. Here I am, Lord. Bless me. Verse 2. But God said to Abraham, Take your son and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, one of the questions that often comes up whenever you study the book of Genesis and you think about the life of the patriarchs and the way in which God spoke to them, one of the questions that very often comes up is, do we believe that God spoke audibly to these men? And I have to believe that if there was ever evidence in scripture for a booming voice from heaven, it's this. There is no chance that Abraham would have trusted an internal tug on his heart. There's no chance that Abraham would have trusted a, a still, quiet whisper in the night with a thing like this. Not only because of the weight of the ask. I mean, listen, he didn't just say, give me your son. He said, you take his life. You will offer him. So, so not only because of the weight of the ass, but I have to also believe because it's completely contrary to everything that Abraham and we know to be true about the nature of God. So you'll find some really, you'll find some really wonky theology around this story because the world is so squeamish. They're squeamish about the idea of any kind of sacrifice, much less the thought that the God of the universe would say to a man, I demand the life of your son. And so because of this, some men will try to turn this into not Abraham being faithful to God, but Abraham failing a test. That God laid this before Abraham, give me the life of your son, thinking there's no way Abraham's going to do a stupid thing like this. There's no way Abraham would believe that I, the God of the universe, would actually demand the life of a boy as a burnt offering. But clearly that's not the pattern in the text. That's not what God is revealing to us here. So, so we've got to figure out then, what, what, what is Abraham thinking? I don't know, we have to figure it out, but my mind starts going there. What, what did Abraham know? Now, God has already, after the flood, expressly forbidden the taking of life except in the execution of righteous judgment. Man's blood, man's life, because he's made in the image of God, is very precious. And so, except in issues of capital punishment, God has said, you don't take life the life of another. But at the other end of the extreme he's not yet given the law of Moses 
Abraham lived in a time and in a place where child sacrifice was, I don't know how common it was, but it happened. It happened enough that when God did eventually speak the law through Moses, he had to warn the people, don't sacrifice your children like the other people do to their God, Molech. I'm not a God who calls you to sacrifice your children. So I don't know. Was Abraham watching the, all the, the religions around him and thinking perhaps this is a thing that God has ordained that I would take the life of my son? Or is he looking at what he knows to be true about God who is the giver of life and thinking this doesn't make sense? This doesn't match who I know God to be. Either way, he heard the voice of God and he trusted. It was a straightforward command. It was, it was plain. It was undeniable. God, I believe in an audible voice, says to him, take your son to this place and consecrate him completely to me. Now, not in the way that Hannah consecrated Samuel as, he, as she left him there in that place saying, I, I, I release all rights that I have to this boy. I release any ownership. I release any blessing that I might have from, from keeping him in my company. I give him over to you wholly and completely. Not like that. But it's a burnt offering. When scripture talks about a burnt offering, if you go back to the story of, of Noah, perhaps, or, or maybe you go to the book of Leviticus, it's often called a pleasing aroma. It, it's, it's as though the, the offerer of the sacrifice says, not only do I relinquish all rights to this animal, but as I burn it upon the altar and the smoke comes up to heaven, as it were, I'm giving it to you. I'm offering it to you. And God doesn't have a mouth to eat and God doesn't have physical hands to receive. And so this is this is the pattern that God has given a clear sign that I'm sending this thing on. I'm sending this thing up to you. So he's saying to his son, you're going to saying to Abraham, you're going to sacrifice your son to me like this. But surely you noticed when I was reading verse two earlier, the part that I skipped. He said, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now we know that Moses had another son. He had another son named Ishmael. And so lest he believe that who God is calling him to sacrifice is the other son, Ishmael, the, the son that he had had with the Egyptian slave woman, he makes clear, not that son, not the son that you sent away along with his mother, Hagar, but Isaac, the son of promise. And you, and you realize, if you really slow down and consider who this boy Isaac was, you realize he was more than just the apple of Abraham's eye. This was the one who had come through supernatural means, a pledge of all God's goodness and all of God's promises. God had said expressly to Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so if you consider everything that was at stake and God's blessings to Abraham and his promises to Abraham, this wasn't just about Abraham and Sarah. This was about the world. Through him shall your offspring be named. This is tied with my blessing, not only of you, but of the whole world. And so surely with each and every one of these words, it was like a hammer blow to the gut. With each and every one of these words, it was like a sword piercing his soul. As God said, I want you to take your son, your only son, 
Isaac, the son whom you love. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early the next morning. Surely this was not like a hunter getting up early the next morning. You know, there's men who have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning to go to work. But when it's the day to fish or the day to hunt, their eyes are open before the sun or a golfer. Surely this was from the restless, sleepless night that had come before. He, he knew enough about God to know that if God commands a thing, the thing must happen. So there was some sense, I'm sure, of resignation. I need to just get on the road and do the thing that God has called me to do. But I imagine as well, it was just a completely sleepless night. Did he plead with God? Did he ask God to consider changing his mind? Did he try to rationalize? You, you know that there would have surely been temptation there from the enemy to turn away from what God had called him to do. And so was he tempted to turn away and to come up with another plan? Or was he tempted to excuse it all as a dream or a, a, just a, a figment of his imagination? We're not told any of that. We're just told he went. And there really is a beauty to just, you feel like you're reading, almost like you're reading a uh, Mark's gospel. You know, Mark's gospel is just boom, 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 boom. Not a lot of fluff, not a lot of color. God said, do it. The next morning, Abraham rose early in the morning and he did it. It says that he saddled his donkey and two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. So Abraham at this point, we don't know exactly how old he is. We know that the boy was old enough to carry the wood on his back. And so Abraham's at least 115 years old, maybe 120 years old, something like this. And we know that Abraham was a very rich man, maybe the richest man in the world at that point. And so we know that he had plenty of servants. And it would have been easy enough for him to look at one of those servants and say, chop the wood, bring the animal, make all the preparations. But Abraham, instead, he does it himself. This is a task that God had given him. So he would chop the wood, he would prepare the donkey, he would get ready to go. So it says then that Abraham and Isaac set out, verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. You, you have heard me from time to time reference jumping out of airplanes in obedience to God. There have been a number of times when God has called me and by extension my family to do things that were difficult areas of obedience for us. And I think it's a matter of God's grace that very often he has called me to do these things and given me the span of about 15 seconds to do them. And I've compared it to jumping out of an airplane. I've always said if I was ever to go skydiving, what would have to happen is we would have to get up there. I cannot stand at the door and look. I've got to close my eyes, one, two, three, take off and go and hope that I've actually got my pack on and haven't forgot when I jump. This was not going to be any spontaneous act of obedience this was prolonged it says three days they traveled as, as they travel Abraham thinking about what God has said and thinking about what lay ahead we don't know what's going through Isaac's mind but Abraham knows what's waiting for him at that mountain Abraham knows the obedience that God has called him to and he's not going to get to just close his eyes and run and jump out the plane he's going to think about it the whole way so then Abraham said to his young men, 
stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So I don't know if you see as clearly what Abraham is saying, and you miss some of the beauty of what's happening, I think, in the ESV. If you look at, say, the NASB translation, it reads like this. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad, we need to bring back the word lad. It's a good name for a boy, good, good word for a boy. I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship, and we will return to you. He doesn't say, I'm going with Isaac, and I'll be back. He says, Isaac, the boy and I, we are going over there and we will worship. By the way, how does Abraham view this sacrifice? <clears throat> worship. We will go and worship Yahweh and we will be back. So again, you can imagine there's all manner of speculation about what's happening here. Was Abraham playing the okie doke? Was he trying to make sure that Isaac didn't know that he was not coming back? Was, was he worried perhaps that his servants would pick up on what was happening and that his servants would try to stop him or they would run up the hill and, 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 and try to prevent him from doing anything? Was, that, was Isaac lying? I mean, Abraham lying. Was Abraham misleading these people because he knew good and well, Isaac's never coming back. I'm not even bringing his body back because I'm burning it upon an altar as a burnt offering to God. Well, we know that that's not the case. Because as you get to the New Testament and you read about the heroes of the faith, we read very clearly, Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, who had received the promises, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He's saying that Abraham, who had received these promises, trusted in God, and he was willing to take his son up there upon the altar, up there upon that mountain, and offer his life as a burned sacrifice to God, trusting that God could raise him from the dead. Now, this is at a time before... We've got any real teaching about the resurrection. But what Abraham knows is that God's ability to fulfill his promises is not hampered even by death. His ability to do what he has promised is not hindered even by something like this. Again, I say even before there had been any real teaching, proper teaching about the resurrection. And so somebody might have asked Abraham in that day. You can imagine this, right? If, if there's somebody walking, one of the servant boys perhaps had disobeyed and was walking with Abraham and sees as he's about to take the life of his son and says, what are you doing? And Abraham looks at him and says, it's okay. God can raise him from the dead. Don't you know that servant's question to him would have been, have you ever seen him do it? No, I've not. But God's ability to do what he said he's going to do is not tied to what I've seen. It's not tied to what's ordinary and common and everyday. It's not tied to my power or my obedience. It's not hampered by my sin. It's not even hampered by death. God's ability to do what he has said is tied to the ability of God. The faithfulness and the character 
and the trustworthiness of God. Now, perhaps there was some thought going through Abraham's mind as he looked to the way in which God had miraculously opened Sarah's womb, brought forth life from a place where there had only been death and no life. And perhaps that was a hint in and of itself. If God could bring this boy about through these supernatural means in ways that don't make any sense to us, in ways that cause my wife to laugh in the face, face of an angel when she heard about it, then surely it's nothing for him to raise my boy back from the dead. But either way, he trusted God is able. And so again, I told you that we, we don't want to make Abraham's obedience and his faith the centerpiece of this story. This is a story about God. A story about Christ. But we do well to pause at this moment and shake our heads and just say, how far has Abraham come? Look what God has done in this man's life. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac. Now there is a, there is a danger as, as we properly, in light of all that we know in the New Testament, in light of what happened with the coming of Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection, we must always read the Old Testament with an awareness of the New Testament. There is a danger in allegorizing things that God never intended for us to allegorize, trying to, trying to pull out pieces that aren't there. But surely as you see him loading the wood upon his son to carry up the mountain, surely you see the pictures in the shadows. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he laid it on his son, Isaac. And he took it in, in his hand, the fire and the knife. And as they went, both of them together, excuse me, so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, if I'm directing this scene, surely it's at that moment that you zoom in on Abraham's face in order to see him turn away and bite down on his lip as the tears run down his face as he hears his son call him my father how many years did that man long to be called father and now here was the one and he calls out to him Abraham knowing what awaits him with an air of innocence again this isn't a little boy though teenager at the very least as he says my my father and Abraham, surely after choking that back, says, here I am, son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So let us not miss this. Isaac has done this before. Isaac has an awareness of what's happening. He knew what a burnt offering was. And so then he looks at his father and he says, father, I'm carrying the wood. You've got the knife, you've got the fire, where's the lamb? Offerings, and specifically sacrificial offerings, they're, they're at the core, the, the, the heart of the worship of God's people from the very beginning. You remember that right after Adam and Eve were cast out of the presence of God, they were driven out of the Garden of Eden to the east and you had the, the cherubim there with the flaming swords to prevent access into the tree of life. We, we, we read immediately about Cain and Abel bringing offerings to God. And some commentators have wondered, and I think perhaps they're right, that 
They would have been taking these offerings maybe to that eastern gate, knowing I can't get back into the presence of God like mother and father once were. But I come here and I make this offering and we know how it was Abel who brought to God in Genesis 4 the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now, there there were other sacrifices that are found throughout Scripture. Again, his his brother Cain brought some other produce, not, not an animal. And we know that there are places, if you read through Leviticus, there are places where there were grain and cereal and bread offerings. And we know that there are some offerings that God's people were commanded to make in which they ate the meal in the presence of God is a is a show of fellowship and and communion and peace that the offerer enjoyed with God. But but we know that at the very heart of all of this, due to the sins of man and due to the separation that exists and due to the debt that God is owed because of our sin, the very heart of this is the burnt offering and atoning sacrifice. A payment that's owed to God. And and again, we see this even before we get to the book of Leviticus, even before we get to the days of Moses. What happened after the ark and the flood? You read about Noah and his family and at the end of Genesis 8, they've they've now the waters have subsided and Noah comes out and we read in Genesis 8 verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of his heart is evil from his youth. The flood didn't fix the problem. The flood brought God's wrath and God's judgment. In mercy and grace, he saved the eight. But the intentions of man's heart continued to be sinful. Therefore, an offering was in due order. A burnt offering and a pleasing aroma to God. Because the wages of sin are death and sin remained. Again, there was a debt that was owed to God. And yet in mercy and grace, God was willing to receive a perfect and acceptable sacrifice, a substitute in place of man. And Abraham knew this. And because Abraham knew it, he had taught it to his boy. And therefore, Isaac knew this. He knew they weren't just going up there to make a fire. He knew they weren't going up there to pick some berries. He knew they were going up there to slay a lamb. So he looks to his father and he says, My father, where is the lamb? Verse 8, And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. This word provide, it's got as its, as its root word, the verb to see. So I've, I've heard wise men before say that you can take this word provide and immediately interpret it. God will see to it. God has commanded it. Therefore, God will see to it. God will provide everything that is necessary for this obedience that he's called us to. So they went, both of them together. I don't know, was there silence from that moment for the rest of the journey? Did did Abraham perhaps clue Isaac in to what God had called him to and clue him in to his assurance that God was able to raise the boy back from the dead? We're not told. They just go on and they go on together. Verse 9. Then when they came to the place of which God had told them, where did God tell him to go? To Mount Moriah. 
to Moriah in one of the mountains that he would show him there. And so you have to think that surely this is the same place that David had bought the threshing floor. The same place where Solomon would build the temple. The same place where for centuries God's people would come and offer burnt offerings. Offer sacrifices to God. Morning and evening God's people would come and offer these sacrifices as an atonement for their sin in this very same place in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son. By the way, go read 2 Chronicles 3. You'll see the references to Mount Moriah there as Solomon is building the temple. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now Abraham is an old man. He was 100 when the boy was born. Now, he would, he would live longer than any of us would, but it didn't mean 100 isn't 100. It doesn't mean he didn't have a frail and aging body. And the boy was strong enough at least to carry the wood up the mountain. So it would have been nothing for Isaac, I don't think, to overtake or overcome his father Abraham, or at very least to run, to put up some resistance. But we're not read about any of this. He takes his son, he binds him, he lays him on the altar. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. You see, the sacrifice didn't merely need to be burned. It had to be burned. It was a picture, again, of total release, total relinquishing of any rights that you had. It was a picture as the smoke raised up, a pleasing aroma to God. It was a picture of something being given to God. But the throat had to be slit. The blood had to be spilled. Because as I said earlier, there's a preciousness to blood that runs all throughout the scripture. Again, go, go back to what God had to say in the very beginning when Cain killed his brother Abel. What did God say to that murdering man? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. What did God say to Noah and his sons after they came out of the ark? He said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God has made man in his own image. Psalm 72 talks about how the poor saints how their blood is precious in the sight of the Lord. There's a preciousness and a value to shedding of blood, even with regards to animals. You remember how once Moses did come and the Levitical law was given, how people were commanded not to eat meat with blood in it. We read Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The life of the animal is in the blood. The payment that's due for sin is death. Therefore, the blood shall be spilled. The lifeblood shall be spilled. That is why there is no, where there is no shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood had to be shed. Verse 10. So Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Now, I've, I've told you before, particularly on Wednesday nights, that very often when we see this reference to the angel of the Lord, it appears as though this might be the word. The, the pre-incarnate son of God, in part because of his willingness to receive worship. Other angels say, whoa, 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 get up, get up, get up. Don't worship me. I'm a creature like you. 
And my father will strike me dead if I receive your praise. The, the willingness of the angel of the Lord to receive worship and praise from him. But in addition to this, what he says at the end when he says that I see now that you would not withhold your son from me. So is this the pre-incarnate Christ? Is this the one who would come hundreds of years later? So Abraham says, here I am. Now surely this had a, a different tone to the first here I am. The first here I am was probably filled with hope and anticipation. And what present, what gift, what blessing do you have for me now, God? But now as he's got that knife pulled out and he's ready to take the life of his son and he hears the angel crying again, this one was probably one of, God, what will you call me to now? He says, here I am. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to harm him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. There are people that get their name in the Guinness Book of World Records for a lot of stupid things. Like you could, we could. We, if we just want to spend the next year, we could probably figure out a hundred different ways to set a record that nobody ever cared about, nobody ever thought about. I guarantee you if there is a Guinness Book World Record for the quickest time a man ever dropped a knife, it was this. Don't touch the boy. Done. Don't have to tell me twice. Don't do, don't do anything to harm him. I see that you fear God. So Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead. Instead. Instead of his only son whom he loved. The acceptable substitute. Beloved, you realize that our theology, you realize that the whole of Christianity is built on prepositions. That instead means everything. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The gospel is not that the Son of God took upon himself flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and rules and reigns today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he did all those things for me. He sacrificed the ram instead of his only son, Isaac, whom he loved. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. We're 500 years later when Moses is writing this. And Moses is saying, you know that mountain where that thing happened? We still say on that mountain, it shall be provided. Don't you see? Abraham and Isaac and Moses and David and Simeon and Anna, they all knew there was a provision yet needed. A ram would never do. 
a lamb would never do. Even Abraham's blessed son, his promised son, the son whom he loved, Isaac, would never do. They could never take away the sins of the world. There had to be another substitute. And to miss this is to miss the sinfulness of sin. It's to miss the offense that sin is against the living God. It's an infinite act of rebellion. If you recognize the nature and the dignity and the worth and the beauty and the value of the holy, holy, holy God whose glory knows no end, then you know that one who is finite man alone could never pay for all the sins of men. They could never repay to God the debt that was owed because of the honor that we sought to take from him. There had to be another sacrifice. There had to be yet another provision made if the sins, the billions of transgressions that would be committed by the millions of sinners throughout creation, there had to be another provision yet to come. There had to be another sacrifice and a substitute yet to come. And praise God that he has. As Peter said in his first letter, that we've been ransomed, not with, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. With a lamb without, by the lamb without blemish or spot. When Paul knelt down at the waterfront with the Ephesian elders and he was giving them their charge about how they were to take care of the church. Do you remember what he said to them there? Acts 20 verse 28. He says, watch yourself and watch the flock whom God bought with his own blood. It took the blood of God. It took one with the worth and the majesty and the dignity and the weight and the glory of God the Son to pay the debt that was owed, to be the perfect sacrifice, to offer this true provision. And Abraham saw this through eyes of faith. Shadows, sure. Pictures, sure. Signs, sure. But he saw the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh will provide. So that then when Jesus is talking to the Jews there in John chapter 8, he says that Abraham, your father, he rejoiced that he would see my day. He has seen it and he's glad. Scripture says that the gospel beforehand was preached to Abraham. How do you think it was preached? When God spared the life of his son. When God provided the substitute. When he recognized that that substitute could not fully and finally pay the debt that man is owed. So it's on that very same mountain we know that God has provided his only son. His son whom he loves. He did not spare him. He did not stop the sword. He did not cancel the sacrifice that he would not withhold his only son, but freely gave him. Beloved, that's what the incarnation is about. It's about the Lord providing. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you did not, that you would not withhold your one and only son. We thank you, Father, that he took upon himself the fullness of flesh, 
that he could stand in as a suitable substitute, having fulfilled all that you've commanded of man, that he could really stand in our stead as man. But we thank you, Father, that it is God, as the divine second person of the Holy Trinity, that he had the worth and the ability to drink down the fullness of your wrath. That his death was enough. That this is why he didn't have to suffer in hell forever. That his death was enough to pay for all our sins. So Father, help us to see this and to celebrate this as we walk through this Christmas season together. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.